Mark chapter 1. I just pray as you're turning there. Father, we, uh, we ask again that you bless this time as we study your word. Uh, give us understanding. May your indwelling Holy Spirit, who inspired these words, may he speak to each of our hearts today. For your glory we ask this. Amen. Okay. Well, we now, uh, having done the prologue, and having seen the uh, calling of the first disciples, we have the first incident, as it were, of the ministry of Jesus. And he goes to Capernaum in verse 21, which is where we're picking up, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So the, the they there are almost certainly Jesus with these initial disciples. And <laughs> Capernaum is a place that uh, was the center of his Galilean ministry. We'll see him there a lot. And he, immediately on the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue. Just, just a word on this immediately. I, th I think my understanding of immediately is going to be changing. Not immediately, but it's going to be changing. Um, there is certainly a sense. The, the word in the Greek literally means immediately. Hence the translation immediately. But it's clearly used by Mark in ways that go beyond that. It, it's almost like a literary device. It's, it's something that signals momentum. Um, so on the one hand, there is the literal sense in which something immediately happens. And Mark is using that word to create and convey a sense of urgency. You know, Jesus in Mark's gospel teaches less. There's less content. I mean, teaches less. He mentions his teaching a lot, but the content of his teaching is less than any of the other gospels. In Mark's gospel, it's all about action. And so immediately Jesus does this, and immediately that, and immediately this. There's this sense of urgency and a flow of action. And I've been kind of umming and ahhing just quite, how, how do you translate that into English? Because immediately doesn't do it. And the best I can come up with so far, though this will undoubtedly change, which is very colloquial, but I've come up with boom. So kind of like Jesus is, is you know, this is, this is young person speak here, so I'm probably getting it slightly wrong. But, you know, Jesus was doing this and that, and then boom, this. And then Jesus did it, and boom, this. And it's, it, he's like he's just shifting our attention there and Bam, there, and boom, there. It's almost like the old Batman, you know, the kapow, the pam, you know. He's a, it's, it's kind of signaling um, something dramatic, a dramatic shift. And so he, he comes to Capernaum, and then immediately, so bam, boom, this is it. So our focus is now upon this event. And he's there in the Sabbath, in the synagogue, and teaching. Now, the synagogue would be a place where the Jews would come to worship, very much like our church. The synagogue services, the structure would be fairly uh, standard. They would have prayers initially, and then there would be a Bible reading from the Old Testament, and the law and the prophets, almost certainly. And they would probably read that in the original Hebrew, but follow it, with a translation in Aramaic. 
Now, that's not quite the same as us reading the Bible, you know, in an original language, like me reading it out in Greek, you guys not having a clue what it meant, and then me translating it into English. It's not quite the same. Because firstly, a lot of them, not a lot of, some of them would have understood the Hebrew. But se- and it's a related language anyway. But secondly, when the Aramaic was read out, it was what's called a targum. It was it was a it was a paraphrase, but more than a paraphrase. I mean, beyond the message paraphrase. You know, it, it was kind of like a, had additional information and stuff. It would it be more explanatory, and so they would have that read out in the service as well. And then after that, they would be taught by a rabbi. And it wasn't unusual that if a traveling rabbi was coming through town, that the people in charge of the synagogue would invite that rabbi to speak. And so it wasn't an unusual situation for Jesus now. Um, Quite how he winged it, I don't know, but I think the the clues are here in the text. In In Mark's gospel, at this point, he's had no ministry as such. He's simply told them, follow me. And the best that we can ascertain is that just like with the disciples last week, the ministry of John the Baptist has gone out and there is an awareness of who Jesus is. There's a lot of talk about Jesus. And certainly when the Spirit descended like a dove and the Father's voice comes down from heaven, however that manifested and exactly looked, that was an event. And there would have been chit-chat and talk about town. And so Jesus is known enough to get his, his uh, seat, as it were, to teach in the synagogue. And so, he, so they have the prayers, they have the Bible reading, they have the targum, and then they have the explanation. And it's almost like a progression from the text of Scripture to more explanatory things and more ideas. And we'll talk about that in a moment because that's going to become relevant. In fact, in the very next verse, when they were, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, it's important that we understand the context of this. Um, but before we do that, let's look at this word astonished. They were astonished. This is something that's going to be, be referenced by Mark again and again. It's a very Markan thing. It's, it's just something that he talks about. They were amazed. They're astonished. And the reason for that is because, as we said from the beginning, this is Jesus, the Son of God. This is the mighty one. This is the strong one. This is the one who, who is, 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 you know... Um, who is able to do all things. He is, you know, whereas John shied away from that in his gospel, Jesus was son of man rather than son of God. Uh, with Mark's gospel, Mark really puts Jesus out there as the mighty one. And then when he goes to the cross, that paradox comes in and Mark then, you know, addresses and deals with that. With John, it's very different. For him, the glory is not the amazing things he does. The glory is the cross. But with Mark, it's very much all about these incidents and events. So he tells us how they're astonished. Now, why were they astonished at his teaching? Well, it tells us why. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So the first thing you've got to note is the scribes didn't teach as one who had authority. So whatever he means by that, the scribes weren't doing it. And it's very clear that the scribes thought they were in charge. So they had authority in one sense. So what does this mean? Well, what it means is this. 
In the same way that you have your Hebrew text, and then you have the Targumim, the Targums, if you want to Anglicanize it, um, you have the, they'll read out a Targum, and a Targum would be almost a kind of mixture of commentary and text. It would be more explanatory. And then they would come and teach, and they would kind of do more explanatory, but it was always referencing what had already been done. So it was a case of, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said that, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, and then Rabbi so-and-so before that said this. And then at the end of it, you're like, well, well so what do I believe? <laughs> you know? It was, they were, they were always deferring to the previous rabbis, to the previous uh, leaders, the previous scribes, and they'd have their own ideas, but they'd always do it. And if you, like me, had to, in your weekday, go through academic commentaries where everybody's saying, well, this scholar says this, and this scholar said that, and it's, it's, very, it's not totally dissimilar to that. But for the people who were listening, there was always this sense in which, well, this idea has weight because so-and-so said it, and this idea had weight because so-and-so said it. Now, one thing that I try and do with my teaching, and I'm, I'm not immune to the odd quote or quotation, I'm not a, I, and I, I certainly don't want to claim an idea as my own that I've got from somebody else. I'd rather say, hey, so-and-so suggested this before. But at the same time, what I'm trying to do is, in a sense, mimic Jesus' teaching. In that what I'm trying to do is say, here's the text, and here's what it means. It could mean this, it might mean that, but here's what I think it means this, and here's the evidence, and here's the arguments. So I'm not trying to be arrogant and say, it mean, it's, I say it means this, so it means this. You know, I'm, I'm often kind of showing you various ideas, but I'm trying to give you reasons to understand the scripture. I'm simply trying to let the scripture speak rather than me speak. That, that's the plan, that's the idea. The, the scribes did the opposite. They weren't interested in the scripture, they were interested in what other people said about the scripture. They were always quoting all these different people. So it's kind of like, if you imagine you, you were in a church where every week you, you had, well our last pastor said this, but the guy three generations ago said that. And you imagine having that every other sentence through every sermon for decade after decade after decade. And then one week, someone like me comes in and opens up the Bible and just teaches it. You go, wow! And, and this is something I routinely see. And it's not, it's not because so much of authority. It's not because of quoting of other people or other people's ideas. But sometimes in sermons today, people will, will basically have a series of stories that are kind of sort of linked by a thin thread by part of the Bible. People will have ideas that they've thought up, and they'll kind of read a passage and use it as a springboard to go and talk about whatever it is they wanted to talk about. And that now, to me, is so alien that when I see it, I just, ugh, hang my head in shame. You know, I, I don't like that kind of thing. And when I teach, and people haven't heard me teach before, sometimes afterwards they'll go, Oh, wow. And I have to try and say, look, it's really not me. This is how it's supposed to be done. It's just that you've had a whole bunch of stories. You've had a whole bunch of springboard sermons. You've had a whole bunch of people linking ideas together and jumping from passage to passage and, and, and just saying what they were going to say anyway. That when somebody comes and actually teaches the Bible, shock horror, it, it's just like this shocking thing. 
So can you imagine how much more so in their day with all of this quoting of authorities and what have you and no one you know, having much of an original idea and if they do then somebody has to quote that next time round as well. That, that for Jesus just to come and they read the Bible passage and Jesus says, well, let me tell you what that means. That was very different for them. And they were astonished. And they were amazed that he would do such a thing and that that's how it was done. And two things about that. One that is discontinuous and one that is continuous. Firstly, discontinuous. We don't get to hear Jesus preach. But boy, would that have been good? The one who inspired Scripture, the one who breathed life into Scripture, the one of whom the Scriptures spoke, for them to read the passage and him to say, well, let me tell you what it means. <laughs> they would have had no idea of quite the extent of how privileged they were. There would be no debates later. Well, you know, Jesus said it meant this, but you know, Rabbi so-and-so said, you know, oh, I'm not sure which one I believe. I mean, Jesus just said it and that's it. You know, sometimes with Bible passages, you know, I come across a, um, an argument for a, for a passage. And, uh, you know, I, maybe in my mind I've wrestled between two different positions over the years. And then I see something I haven't seen before, something that's explained to me in a different way. Oh, a penny drops and it makes sense. And I never have to, you know, I'll always go back and double check, but, but it, it, I've got it now. It makes sense. And I imagine with Jesus, that's what it would be like every single sentence. This means this, this means this, this means this, and this means this. And you're just going, wow, yeah, it does. That must have been just amazing. But in the continuous sense, the one thing that we've seen already in chapter 1 is that Jesus was baptized and the Spirit descended on him like a dove going into him. We'll talk about this more in a minute. So Jesus did what he did in his ministry as a, someone who was, yes, fully God, but also fully man, who was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures we have are Spirit-inspired. And we ourselves are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so, the teaching with authority isn't something that needs to be unique to Jesus. But it isn't something that we can just do like that. Now, one of the most bizarre and fascinating verses in Scripture is in Luke's Gospel, where we're told about the childhood of Jesus and how he grew in knowledge and wisdom. And if Jesus had to grow in knowledge and wisdom, then there's no shortcuts for us. So for those who want to teach, there's a lot of study. For anyone who wants to know the Bible, you've got to study, you've got to read, you've got to, you've got to go beyond where you currently are. But certainly there is authority inherent within the scripture that we can all benefit from. Whether it's in our personal devotions, whether we hear it in sermons at church, we can benefit from the authority of the scripture. The danger, for any of you who would ever teach one day or you know, teach your kids or what have you, the danger in teaching is to distract from the text. We just want to say what it says. Talk about the things that come up in it. We don't want to get distracted too far from the text that we're in. And uh, Jesus certainly had the authority of Scripture. He taught in a manner that had authority, and that's why they were amazed at him. So verse 23, boom, bam. 
immediately. There was in the synagogue, in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. Well, how to translate unclean spirit? Literally defiling spirit. It was a spirit that defiled him. Evil spirit, many modern versions say. That's pretty good. That's kind of more the gist of what's going on. But then it lacks the, um, it lacks the religious nuance. You know, the idea that this man was ceremonially unclean. He's come into the synagogue and he's unclean because he is possessed by this unclean spirit. Just a few things on this verse. Firstly, we see the effect of the immediately. You know, here's your scene set. Dum, 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 in the synagogue, teaching, authority, amazed, awesome. Boom, suddenly. It's like the camera shifts and pans away. And here we are. Here is this man with an unclean spirit. And so the focus is now on him. Now, we conveniently, the last few weeks, have been doing spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. And we're familiar with, the, you know, the demons and, and you know, uh, cosmic powers, the rulers, the authorities. And as we go into Colossians in the new year, God willing, we're going to see a whole bunch more of that as well. Here we see something very different. Now, we're, I'm going to talk towards the end a bit more about the concept of exorcism today. We'll talk about them more in a minute. We'll talk about more as we go through the book because we're going to have a whole bunch of these. But um, what I want us to note for now is that the same demons that Paul has been teaching us about, that this man has one. He has an unclean spirit. He has a demon in some way, shape, or form. Okay? So we'll leave that for now. We'll accept that as it is, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. And what he does is he cries out. So Jesus hasn't invited him. He hasn't, Jesus hasn't sought him out. This man has walked into the synagogue while Jesus is teaching. It would be like somebody walking in off the street now and starting to shout at me. Jesus in the midst of teaching and then boom, suddenly, immediately, here it is at this moment, this man with an unclean spirit comes in and he cries out. And this is what he says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So, a few things to note here. Firstly, there are, there are questions. So there are things that are unknown. Too often, Christians presume that the enemy knows everything. We sometimes allow him in our minds to be omnipresent. He's not. Created being, one place at one time. God's omnipresent. No created being is. Sometimes we allow him to, to be um, omnipotent. Oh, what can you do? Satan's doing this and that. The enemies are so strong. No. We have within us, as we've seen in Ephesians, the power that raised Christ from the dead and placed him above all rulers and authorities, principalities and powers. God is omnipotent. He has all power. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. But thirdly, I think sometimes we allow Satan to somehow become omniscient. That he knows more than he can. Here is a demon coming to Jesus when he's teaching. <laughs> so Jesus is there sharing information, and it's as if the demon's saying, that's not the information I want. I want to know about this. I want an answer. 
What have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? Now, the, what have you do to what have you to do with us is an idiomatic expression that basically means, "What's your problem, mate?" What are you all about? What are you coming here? What's this about? So in a sense, the demon has come with the man to the synagogue, to a religious place, to where Jesus is teaching, and invaded their turf, as it were. But the first thing he says, what do you have to do? You know, what do you, what do you, uh, let me get it right, sorry. Let me read it exactly. What have you to do with us? That idiomatic expression is, is more, it's quite an aggressive thing. It's, what's your problem with me, sort of thing. And so the irony that Mark is painting here is in on the one hand, the, the demon has come towards Jesus. But from the demon's perspective, you've come into our world. You, what are you doing here in our place? That's the question. And then the more pressing question is, have you come to destroy us? Is this it? Is this the end? Oh, I've got so many questions about this, but we'll save them for a minute. Let's keep moving on and we'll come back in a sec. But just to note before we move on, they know who he is. You are the Holy One of God. There is a revelation here. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. So when he rebukes him, the him is not the man, the him is the spirit. Because he says to the spirit, come out of him, and that second him is the man. So he rebukes the spirit and says, be silent. Now this is the beginning of a theme, and it's only, it's only hinted at here. And if this was all there was, then we'd probably just leave it. But this is the beginning of a theme in Mark's gospel, which is Mark's secrecy. Mark is constantly having Jesus say to people, Shh, don't tell anyone I healed you. Don't tell anyone who I am. Keep it quiet. And so this is the first instance of, of that. It's not a full-blown version of it, it's certainly a hint of it. When we come to it more majorly, I'll deal with it more majorly. I just want at this point to reference it so you know it's a theme that started that we'll come back to. But he tells him to be silent. And it's just like, because to us, it's like, why would you want him to be silent? Saying is yes, you are the Holy One. Yes, you can destroy them. Why ask him to be quiet? He's doing a great job here. Well, there's a couple of possible reasons. Firstly, why would he come in and say that? What would be his purpose and his motivation? I've pondered on this, and I'm going to give you... I don't see many commentators or teachers actually even considering this, but this is my take on it for what it's worth. Take it or leave it. If God says to an angel... Hey, angel, go and announce this. What's going to happen? The angel's going to go and announce it. Why? Well, because A, God's sovereign, and B, the angels are holy, and the holy angels are going to obey the holy God. I mean, that's just obvious, right? But what about in Satan's kingdom? These are fallen angels. These are unclean. They're not good. So we tend to presume... We tend to presume that they will do what Satan tells them to do because he seeks after evil and they seek after evil, right? 
So we just kind of automatically presume in the same way an angel will obey God that a demon will obey Satan, right? But there's one difference. For the angel, God is the most important thing. But for a demon, if the demon is evil, surely they have selfishness. And it seems to me that this demon may have broken ranks, so to speak, because he's realized that Jesus has turned up and he's worried very clearly about the fact that they might get destroyed. Have you come to destroy us? Is that the plan? What's going to happen to us? So it's not a pronouncement of, of Christ from a positive perspective. I think, I think this is a case perhaps, perhaps, of self-preservation or at least an attempt at it, which is a pretty futile one as we're going to, as we're going to see. But, so Jesus tells him to, to be quiet. I think secondly, um, Jesus is going to show us who he is, and he wants to teach on his terms and not have a demon represent him. So it's an easily understood, I think, silence. Be silent and come out of him. And notice what happens. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. So there's two things that happen here, or three things actually, I guess if you include the coming out, but there is, he convulses. There's like this kind of shaking and convulsion. And then he cries out in a loud voice, which literally, I don't think you can really translate into English, but the, um, the, the description of the verb is a related word. So it's like he shouted shoutily or something like that. He screamed screamily. That's, that's what it is. It's a nice little play on words there. What it means is that it was a very, very loud crying out. And the third thing that happens is that this demon leaves the man. And so the demon has so affected his behavior that it can clearly be seen that the demon has left him. Now, before we get the crowd's response, there's a few things here. Firstly, let's look at the context of Mark. Mark has told us a few things contextually so far that are important. This is the first incident in the public ministry of Jesus Christ. He's privately ministered, in a sense, by calling his disciples. And this is his first public ministry event. In John's Gospel, Jesus calls his disciples, he's got an incident with Nathaniel, he even does a miracle on the quiet at a wedding before his ministry goes public. But from John's perspective, the, the ministry publicly is announced, it's kicked off with Jesus walking into the temple and turning over the tables. It's deliberate and it's dramatic because it's so central to John's theme of Jesus as the temple. It's central, but it's important because of what Jesus says at the end of that scene about his body being the temple, or that the, the, uh, John commentates on that and says his body is the temple when he says, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and in three days I will rebuild it, and the misunderstanding. There's so much there that's central to John's gospel. So my mind is thinking, why is this event a seemingly innocuous exorcism that he will repeat multiple times. Why is this the beginning of Mark's public ministry? Why is it, you know, I'm not saying that there's a disagreement. I'm simply saying when Mark presents the ministry of Jesus, the first thing he mentions should be a big deal, should it not? So why, why does he do this? There's, there's two things in our context in Mark. Firstly, 
at the end of the prologue, we saw that the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. He drove him out into the wilderness, and he was there tempted by Satan. And in Matthew's Gospel, in Luke's Gospel, as we, as we mentioned, they have the great... Um, description of the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. But Mark doesn't. Mark doesn't have that temptation. He, he simply has the reference to wild animals and angels ministering to him. There were wild animals in the wilderness, that's a bad thing, and there were angels ministering to him, that's a good thing. And that's it. And as I told you at the time, I think the reason for Mark's brevity is, is that the battle between Jesus and Satan in Matthew and Luke is really quite incidental, and therefore they want to tell you about what happened in the wilderness. But for Mark, he's referencing the wilderness event because he's trying to set this up, because the whole of Mark's gospel is the conflict between Satan and Jesus. So he kind of, he's kind of, he's not telling us who won the wilderness or what happened. He's saying Jesus went there to be tested by Satan, and now he's in public ministry, and what's the first thing that's happening? It's a conflict between Jesus and Satan. And that's why I believe that Mark, as I said at the time, when he says about the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness, he doesn't just say lead like, like Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke. He says literally that the Spirit cast Jesus out into the wilderness. And, and that is the same word that is used here of Jesus casting out the unclean spirit from the man. And I think the whole point of that is to connect the two stories together. The prologue ends with the introduction of the conflict between Jesus and Satan, and the public ministry of Jesus begins with the conflict between Jesus and Satan. So that casting out word is used to draw these two passages together. One other thing that I've wondered this week, I didn't wonder it when I was preparing that passage, so just an additional little, little tidbit here, but it does say the wild animals and the angels, and we talked about the reference to angels' messengers because of the link in Isaiah 40 and the reference to Isaiah in the early part of the prologue. But I do now wonder whether the wild animals, which are commonly used, as I said at the time, um, as something negative and something nasty and something evil and something bad, that whether the wild animals and the angels are the kind of contrast of the demons and the angels. It's part of this, the setting up of this battle. But either way, this is a setting up of the battleground that goes on. And so now, when we start the ministry of Jesus, the reason it starts with an exorcism is because so much of this early part of the ministry of Christ is about Jesus having conflict with Satan. And Jesus is going to roll out the easy winner. But at halfway, we have a shift. And we'll talk about that when we get there. The other thing in the context of Mark that I want to discuss is um, that when the Spirit descended on him, it, it says in most English versions, descended on him, but literally in the Greek it says it descended into him. And so what we have here, when we now come to this exorcism, is we have a demon who is possessing a man in conflict with the Spirit of God who is possessing, indwelling a man. 
And again, if that's uncomfortable for you because you're like, Jesus is God. Of course Jesus is God. But let's not neglect that he's fully man too. And this is the parallel that's being painted for us here. We have a man who has a spirit and we have another man who has a spirit. Which spirit's going to win? That's the battle that's being portrayed for us here. So I hope you can see contextually in Mark's gospel why this is an appropriate launching pad for Jesus' ministry. Now, I may say more about this in future weeks. We're going to have a lot of exorcisms in the coming weeks. So I may say more about it in the future. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, is I don't want to get overrun with it tonight. Secondly, I want more time to think about it. <laughs> but I'll, I'll reveal more to you as time goes by, I think. But... When we talk about exorcism, one thing that people always want to know is what about exorcism today? People in some wings of the church talk about it as if it's an almost commonplace thing. People will cast demons out of somebody every Sunday in some churches. Whatever you're doing wrong, the reason you're doing it wrong is because it's a demon. Eating too much chocolate, that's the demon of chocolate. Can't stop smoking, that's the demon of nicotine. You know, everything is blamed on a demon. The, demon. the demons are under every rock. They're all over the place. And a lot of that kind of gets filtered through to us. And we need to kind of wrestle with this and deal with this. I think the other thing to remember in this whole discussion is that we're living in 21st century America. Where when there are churches where this stuff happens, it's considered wacko. But if you're coming from other parts of the globe, where things like witch doctors and what have you are just normality to them, then when missionaries come back and talk of exorcisms, are we to disbelieve it simply because we don't see it very much in our society? So there's, there's all sorts of really quite difficult issues here. What I will say to you is this, and this is, this is the important stuff, maybe more details in the future, but this is the important stuff. We have just been through the book of Ephesians, almost finished. And Paul in Ephesians has basically laid out the plan of God, the accomplishments of God, and the difference it makes to our lives. He's talked to us about all the blessings that we have in Christ, and then he's talked about how we live, both as individuals and corporately as a church, in light of what God has done for us. It's pretty much a summary of what the Christian life looks like. It tells us of all the important things. And yet... Nowhere is there even the slightest hint of when someone comes into your church and they're possessed by a demon, do an exorcism, or this is how you do an exorcism, or, or anything like that. Not a mention of it. Not only is there not a mention of it in Ephesians, there's not a mention of it in any other letter to any other church anywhere else in the New Testament. It's like it happens in the Gospels, and it happens a little bit in the book of Acts, and then it's gone. Not mentioned again. And more so, and this is really important, it's not like these letters don't talk about demons. We've just dealt, we're just dealing in Ephesians 6 with a passage that talks about demons in like five different ways. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, stand against the, the plans of the devil. You know, he's not hiding from the reality of demons. The concept of demons is very, very much there at the front of Paul's mind. It's not something he's forgotten about. 
And every single time, the Christian is protecting themselves from the enemy outside. There's never any reference to the enemy being inside. Why? Why the change? Well, I don't think that it's a totally clear-cut, but the predominant reason is, and I don't think that this is something that really is of any debate particularly, there's details in Acts that may be slightly different, but when, as we've seen in Ephesians, when we are saved, God gives us his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit, <coughs> in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, is God's deposit. It's God's deposit. It's saying, you are mine, and I will come back with the fullness of redemption later. It's a guarantee of our future redemption. So God gives us his Holy Spirit. So we are not of the kingdom of darkness. We don't have any evil spirits within us. We have the Holy Spirit within us. Right? And when, and this is why it's so crucial. I was talking with someone earlier about, about the kind of Pentecostal doctrines, and this is why it's so important, okay? Because when we understand that every single Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then there's not room, firstly, there's not room for any Christian to have an evil spirit. Because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is His home. Right? We're a temple of God. And secondly, because we are all indwelt by the Spirit the moment we believe under the new covenant, what that means then is that if somebody has an evil spirit, for argument's sake, then the moment they believe, they no longer do. So for Jesus, the solution to a man with an evil spirit is to get rid of that evil spirit. How is that evil spirit gotten rid of? You say by rebuking. That's not my point. In the context of Mark, the way he got rid of the evil spirit was with the Holy Spirit, who is empowering him, right? That same Holy Spirit is ours now. But Jesus, in the beginning of Mark as well, says, we're told that he will baptize future with the Holy Spirit. That hasn't happened yet. They're still under the old covenant. And because they're under the old covenant, they don't yet have the Holy Spirit. Only the very few do under the old covenant, remember? They don't yet have the Holy Spirit, and therefore, believing in Jesus is not sufficient to not have a, an evil spirit. Saul was a believer in God. And he had the Holy Spirit. God gave him his Holy Spirit. Very unusually. Most Old Testament believers didn't. But at a point in time, God took the Holy Spirit from Saul and gave Saul an evil spirit. Now that couldn't happen today. When David prays, take not your Holy Spirit from me, that's not a prayer for us today. Because the Holy Spirit is given and is the guarantee of God's future redemption. But with 
with the old covenant, it was certainly a possibility. And so what we're seeing in the Gospels is we're seeing, although it's in what we call the New Testament, it was still operating under the old covenant. In Acts, we see a little bit of exorcism, because remember in Acts, we have the phasing in of the New Covenant. First to the Jews, then to the Samaritans, then to the Gentiles. And we have this kind of phasing in. So the New Covenant is coming in, in Acts, it's not there at all in the Gospels. But once we get to the churches and the letters to the churches... When everybody who's there, whether Jew or Gentile, they're together in one body, and they're united, Paul says, the Jew and the Gentile are united because they have the same Holy Spirit. So there's no possibility of any Christian ever being possessed by an evil spirit. None at all. Now the only question that then leaves is, is it possible that a Christian would meet someone who does have an evil spirit and have a need to cast them out. Now that's a bit of a grey area and it's less likely here, but my answer would simply be this. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where the churches are told to do that. What they are told to do is preach the gospel. Why? Because when someone believes the gospel, what happens? They have the Holy Spirit problem resolved. So I don't think the solution, if you did come across someone who genuinely was possessed by an evil spirit, then, then my answer would be preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. And then someone says, well, they won't understand because they're possessed by an evil spirit. My answer is, but I believe in the greater power of the Holy Spirit which is exactly what's being illustrated here. And you see, and that is the danger with so much of the church today, is that, and it hasn't been planned, but one of the things that I've done this year with you guys, those of you in the evenings with the History of the Holy Spirit series, with the book of Ephesians, one of the, and now again with Mark, one of the things I've shown really clearly is the unique blessings that come to us as new covenant believers. We are not believers like David was a believer, like Isaiah was a believer, like Jeremiah was a believer. We're not. We're new covenant believers. They, they look forward to our day to our time, to the blessings that we have. And it's very sad to me that in churches today, there are people who teach that God can give you the Holy Spirit and then take it away. That's Old Covenant. That's Old Covenant. It's upsetting to me that people are told that you can be gods and then not be gods. I don't think that was ever the case, but it comes from an understanding of old covenant passages. It's upsetting to me that, that people you know, will, will pray things in the Psalms about the presence of God. Lord, we're going to come today into your presence. No, you're not. That's old covenant. We are the presence of God now. You are not any more in God's presence when you come to church tonight than you are when you wake up tomorrow morning. We keep taking away the new covenant blessings and we live like we're living under the old covenant. Generational curses, some churches will teach. Old covenant. 
<laughs> Give your money and you'll be blessed. Old covenant. Most heresies come from old covenants. It's just because, and you know the advantage of that? The advantage of that is you can say, look, it's biblical, and turn someone there. You know, I can remember we were teaching Ephesians 1. A friend of mine, I think I mentioned it in the sermon at the time, it was a, a guy who's a pastor, was, was teaching the exact opposite of what Paul was saying. Paul was talking about how we receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And he was talking about physical blessings. And he was talking about getting blessings you don't yet have. And how did he do it? He quoted Deuteronomy. Old covenant! And why do I say all of this? Because, again, in many churches today, they're there, someone comes to church and says, hey, pastor, I've got a problem with this. Uh, I discern a demon. Let's cast it out. Old covenant! There's no place for that. And, you know, it's interesting that, um, that those errors crop up again and again. And that's why I think it's foundational for us that what we do is we keep teaching new covenant truths so we know who we are in Christ. Because that's what Paul says. He says, if you want to be filled with all the fullness of God, if you want God to impact every order of your life to the fullest degree, you need to just look at what he has done, the power that he's given you, the blessings he's bestowed on you, and the glory that is to come. The hope that you have in Christ. That's what you need. Not to have someone lay hands on you and give you a blessing you haven't yet had. Not for someone to cast something out of you that you don't want to have any longer. But to know what has accomplished. And here's the saddest thing of all. If you think the answer is getting what you don't have and getting rid of what you do have, then you don't learn about what you have now in Christ. And the result, of course, is you don't change and you're stuck where you were. So, he cast him out. One last thing on the exorcism practically. And we'll see, actually, let's read the next verse and then we'll see that clearly. So he, he shouts out in a loud voice and he comes out of him and they, back to the people in the synagogue, were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the evils, the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So they're all amazed. <laughs> Hardly surprising. There you are at the synagogue. We've got a guest speaker today, Rabbi Jesus. Rabbi Jesus, come and share with us this morning. And Rabbi Jesus starts teaching, and a guy walks in and starts going, I know who you are! <laughs> Just mid-sermon, and Jesus says, Shut up! Get out of him! And the guy rolls around the floor, flutters at the mouth at a bit, and screams really loudly, and then he gets up and walks away and says, Oh, thanks for that. <laughs> You're going to be amazed, aren't you? That's a pretty dramatic event to have occurred. But the amazement is there. Because he teaches with authority, that's what we saw earlier, and he commands and they obey. Now, we've got to understand this commanding and obeying in context, okay? It was not an alien concept to have exorcism in that day. They had people who claimed to do exorcisms. It's not something that was unheard of. And I'm not going to cast any judgment one way or the other on whether those were legitimate exorcists and whether they were legitimate exorcisms. 
simply to say that the people of that time were familiar with the concept. Some people will say that in those days there were things that today we can see to be perhaps mental disorders, things today that we can see to, to be sort of maybe physiological reactions that they wouldn't have understood and they would have attributed to demons. That may well be. But when we remember that each demonic being is a created being that fell and they can only be in one place at one time, if you as Satan are in control of your army, and God himself comes in human flesh, where are you going to put your troops? So they would have been around at that point of that day, okay? But they were familiar with the concept, the concept of exorcism. And this is how it happened. This is how you would exorcise a demon. You say, hello demon, or perhaps not quite as politely as that, but hello demon, what's your name? Who are you? And the demon might say, oh, you know, my name is Demon Bob or whatever, you know, I don't know whatever name you want. My, my, name is, my name is X. And then, then they will say, X, come out. Right? But they didn't just say come out. They would do it with incantations. Magic spells. Like, demon X, I say to you by the wizardry of wisdom that you might do this and then this and that and this and that and the flowers and the trees and the blah, 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 and the powers of this and that. And they just have this little kind of reciting thing like a spell. That's how they would do it. And they would basically be, to my mind, if, big if, there was legitimacy to it, it almost sounds like they were kind of trying to outrank one demon with another. Which gives us some context, perhaps, to Jesus being accused of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. But that's, that's an, another interesting thing. But, but from our perspective, this is what I find fascinating, is the demon has come into the presence of Jesus and he has spoken to him and called him by name twice. Jesus of Nazareth, Holy One of Israel. Now, this is deliberately ironic. What's supposed to happen is that the one casting the demon out takes control, takes authority over that demon by speaking to him by name. Now, this is what I was saying to you earlier. We've got the battle. There's two men with a spirit and they're raging against each other. And the man with the first spirit comes in and says, I know your name, I know who you are. I suspect the Holy One of Israel may be a reference even to the Holy Spirit specifically, but anyway, at the very least, there is a use of names when Jesus is addressed. When Jesus speaks to the, Holy, um, speaks to the, to the man who's possessed by the unclean spirit, he is expected to use a name. He doesn't. Out. Go. Shoo. Done. And the spirit obeys. There's no incantation. There's no use of a name. There's no asking of a name. He doesn't need a name. It doesn't matter who he is. He knows who he is. Out. Go. Done. Shut up. Stop doing what you're doing. Get out. And he goes. That's authority. He bypassed the entire system that would be used in that day. And that's what amazed them. 
I don't know if they'd seen exorcisms. I don't know if they were aware of it. I don't know if they heard of it. I don't know if the ones that were claimed to be done were legitimate or not. But what they saw was the real deal. And it was the real deal in a way that they would not have even heard of before. In fact, so necessary was it to address the demon with incantations that if a demon made a person mute so that they couldn't speak, then it became impossible to their mind's eye to cast that demon out. But we'll talk about that more in a few chapters' time. But here we are, and they've seen and witnessed this amazing miracle. And despite the fact that Jesus has said, be silent, there is no silencing of his fame. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And this is very much why this is our first miracle, our first public event in Jesus' ministry in Mark's Gospel. Because Jesus has been portrayed by Mark as being the Son of God, the Mighty One, the Strong One. And then in the end of the prologue, Satan comes along and Satan is there and there is this, there is this conflict between them that then drags into the main message, into the main, the main book, the main storyline. And here we have the first instant and this man faces off, man with a spirit against a man with a spirit, and they face off and it's total domination. And because Jesus has shown himself to be mighty, because he has proven himself to be the mighty son of God, his fame spread. And that's what Mark's trying to convey. Mark is trying to convey that the, the Jesus, the word gets out about Jesus, that people hear about Jesus because he shows himself to be who it is that Mark is saying that he is, the mighty son of God. And on that battleground, on day one, there is absolutely no dispute for anybody watching who the victor was. Now, we're going to see plenty more of those battles, but that's a good one for us to start off with. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for just the richness of it. And uh, Lord, I just pray that we would understand who we are as New Covenant believers and the privileges that we have. And understand that not only are we not ever going to be in the situation of that man, because we, we cannot be indwelt by an evil spirit. But more so, we're in the position of the other man. That we, like Christ, are empowered with the same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who has power over all other spirits, all other rulers and authorities and powers. May we be encouraged and may we walk in that. Amen.